What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidya Tagawal, and let's get started. But it can start to get fatiguing. Like I actually found like I was setting really bad boundaries as a founder. Like, you know, like when that media buzz was happening, like I was just reaching out to so many potential, you know, like newsletters and podcasts and publications, getting so many people to share it, getting so many inbound requests. And I wasn't, I kind of like lost this um, rhythm in terms of uh, health, in terms of meditation, in terms of like, you know, blocking off solo time. And so actually I remember like just those first. That's Dan Brockwell, one of three co-founders at Early Work. And in this episode, explore your curiosity about the community-centered startup they're building in Early Work that scaled from zero to 3,000 members. I've enjoyed being a member of this community from the early days. So this was fun to learn more about how the co-founders complement each other, Dan's personal learning journey, why raising funding is not the marker of success, and managing quantity versus engagement. Stay tuned for Dan's answer on the two questions he gets asked the most, and we cover your community questions. Please enjoy. Dan Brockwell, welcome to the show. Hit it, mate. Thanks so much for having me on. Super psyched to be here. I'm pumped. You've got a cool, cool story and we've been looking for a while, so glad we can finally do this. Let's have some fun facts. Where were you born and where do you live now? Oh, where was I born? Prince of Wales Hospital, right near UNSW, so Sydney, born and raised. Stayed there around there for a, a fair while, uh, but right now actually based down in Thirrell in Wollongong, um, so about uh, just an hour and a bit kind of south of Sydney, um, kind of in living in a hacker house with a couple of other founders, side hustlers, but um, normally kind of, you know, family home is still based around uh, North Bondi area. And what was your first job and what do you do now? First job? Uh, I was 14 years old and my cousins worked at like this tutoring center called Kumon, had no idea what Kumon was, I'd never done Kumon uh, and ended up becoming like a, you know, kind of, uh, I say the word tutor, but maybe more, to be honest, a paper marker at, at age 14. Uh, where I'd be, you know, sitting at the head of the table, kids would be doing various worksheets. I'd, you know, mark them and file papers. Um, so actually, yeah, never ended up doing kind of like the retail or hospitality sort of stint. Um, yeah, started off working in a tutoring center. Eventually, just started doing private tutoring myself. I think like a, you know, a lot of kids kind of, you know, ambitious kids, you know, going into uni. That's kind of like where you start. You know, you can have your own little business, uh, get a bunch of clients together. Um, but soon enough, fell into the land of tech and startups. Cool. That's that's really that's really interesting hearing about your story. And the purpose of this show, Dan, is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer in your life that you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? A high flyer in my life that hasn't gotten the recognition they deserve. Interesting. Uh, to be honest, I, I'd probably say like my siblings, like both of them, like they've been through a lot personally, but have just done like some super super impressive stuff. Much more low key on uh, social media versus me. Probably not shilling as much. Um, but like, you know, like my sister, um, like she's like done some incredible stuff, you know, like creating art herself, like starting her own business and doing kind of like different sort of, you know, graphic design and kind of uh, stage design work, um, projects for, for, you know, various stuff and kind of, you know, arts, music, entertainment. And my brother, um, you know, transferred into law and just been going like super hard at that, managed to end up working for like the premier's office, 
Um, so I was working with old mate Gladys back in the day. Um, but like, yeah, doesn't even use LinkedIn. Um, so it's like, I think both of them, like, you know, they're working super hard in very different fields to me. So like art and law, um, and maybe don't have as much of kind of like the, the marketing angle, but like, you know, especially, you know, seeing what they've kind of gone through over the years, like I'm super impressed by their ability to kind of, you know, consistently, you know, work hard, try new things and, and grow as people. I feel like that must balance you out really well because you're this active on social media, always posting, and then your siblings are kind of a bit more private. And they've, uh, I know your sister, she's got a creative side to her, right? She's helped you out with your logos and she's, I think you've got a tattoo that she's made as well. Yes, I do. Uh, four tattoos actually. Um, so yeah, my sister also like just self-taught tattoo artist, like does all these like, yeah, incredible things. But yeah, I think, you know, when you don't necessarily have like a formalized, you know, like startup business model with a big brand around it, people just often don't hear about like um, the, the stories of those sort of people. Let's go into early work. And, and for listeners who might not be aware, you're one of three in the co-founding team. Let's start there with the team. Tell us about who are the two other co-founders? How do you complement each other? And what do each of you do in the business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Three of us, you know, John and myself, Marino, all went to UNSW, all were doing, you know, commerce and some tech-related degree, varying amounts of information systems and computer science, um, and all kind of like were involved in the like society landscape at UNSW, specifically around startup clubs. Um, so, I mean, I was, you know, uh, involved with Business One Consulting, which was doing pro bono startup consulting. Jono ran Startup Link at UNSW, which is a society connecting students and startups. And then Marina was involved with a not-for-profit um, outside of university called Generation Entrepreneur, which was a teaching entrepreneurship in high schools. So I think all of us very early on kind of like had kind of stumbled our own way into startups through uni, um, you know, got involved with kind of societies in the space, did internships in the space, but kind of took uh, perhaps kind of a path that was less conventional uh, than the traditional business student. Uh, and kind of like knew them vaguely at the time and kind of seen the names pop up. But um, it, it, funnily enough, we actually weren't like, you know, like super close friends in uni. It's not like we were kind of like a, a gang of three, like they're all the way through. Uh, we were kind of more, you know, in adjacent circles and uh, adjacent groups. I think, yeah, in, in terms of kind of how the team started to come together, originally I, was, I just started early work as a newsletter in September of 2020. And I remember asking the question, man, if I want to, you know, work on this for a long time, this is a problem I really care about. Like who else gives a shit about a similar problem? And so I kind of practically looked across the student ecosystem and saw that Jono was running a recruiting agency uh, to help startups hire students. And so I ended up reaching out to him. Like we had a chat and we we're like, hang on, content, hiring, put two and two together and you can make something magic. Uh, and so that ended up, you know, you know bringing on, you know, Jono is kind of like a second co-founder. And at the time he also had kind of a business partner who was involved with the business um, who later had to kind of step back because of other startup commitments. And so John and I then went, hang on a minute, you know, we want to go really hard at this. We want to be able to eventually go full time on this. Like who's a third co-founder we can bring on board that brings a different perspective. And funnily enough, Marina was someone I'd interviewed for an early work one minute hustle series mm. previously. So we had this kind of interview series where we interview young founders and side hustlers. She was writing her own newsletter about product management. Um, and it had kind of like similar background to John and myself in terms of, you know, uh, operating across kind of like the, the young startup ecosystem. Um, so ended up bringing Marina on as well. And then it was a gang of three. I think like when, when we talk through kind of like personalities and kind of what we do day to day, um, I suppose like for the past couple of months, I've probably been, been leading more so kind of like the content and marketing. Jono's been more so on kind of like, you know, the sales, partnerships, uh, legal, finance. And then Marina's been focused more on kind of, you know, uh, the core community and kind of operations and processes around that. Um, it's interesting now because I think, you know, we're in quite a um, an intermediate state where we're kind of, you know, starting to shift our focus. And so 
even like, you know, if you were to ask me kind of in a month's time, like roles are already starting to change. So I'm starting mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, as we brought on new employees, take a step back from the day-to-day content and marketing and think about, you know, broader acquisition strategy, broader kind of, you know, um, business model, uh, you know, creation and evolution for early work. Um, and so, yeah, and nominally our titles are chief meme officer, chief handshake officer, <laughs> chief community officer, um, but, you know, could very well change in the coming months. I think it's a, it's an important point because one of the underrated parts of startups is you're so focused on the external customer and your community that you almost forget about the co-founding team and that's a community in itself and you're getting to mm. know each other and I'm sure there's kind of growing pains there and and I know having known through all three of you, you're probably the more extroverted personality and Marina and John are more introverted and they like being a bit behind the scenes where you're this guy at events and you're on LinkedIn all the time. Talk to that around what's been the biggest learning um, with the three of you getting to know each other that's helped you unlock growth within early work at a people level within the co-founding team? It's a really, really good question. Um, I, I think, and I, I love your framing as well before around like, you know, like, you know, the company itself internally is a community and it's like, you can't create a great community externally if you don't have mm-hmm. a great community internally. Um, was your question kind of more around like, isn't like, you know, challenges or kind of like, you know, like key things we've done to help create a better team culture? Yeah, I think the biggest probably learning you've had because listeners of this show might be co-founders themselves or maybe they 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 have aspirations to be co-founders and it's a really nerve-wracking thing, right? Because getting that gel and that bond early on is critical and because you've got introverted, extroverted personalities and this community you're building and limited resources, what's kind of been one of the biggest sort of unlocks within the three of you or was it always hunky-dory from day one and you got along and things were great? Not a good question. Yeah, I think probably something that's actually started to shift over the, the past few months in particular, especially since we've gone full-time, is really that focus on, on, you know, like does the whole team need to be involved in every conversation, every meeting versus, you know, like trusting people to specialize and own different swim lanes. And so I think kind of, like, you know, starting out, all of us are probably generalists. Like we've, you know, we're kind of like all jacks of all trades and have tried a lot of different internships. And that's fantastic when you're an early stage business, right? Like if you need a task done, you know, like, okay, Maz and I have had a little bit of design experience. John's done a little bit of, you know, legal and finance. Like we've, I've done, you know, sales. So you can all kind of like, you know, chip in with, you know, different things that we've learned along the way. Um, I think the, the biggest learning we've had over time in order to, you know, move faster as a team and build kind of stronger competencies is actually like trusting people to kind of own certain streams, even if you might have, you know, some experience in that stream. It's like, you know, for instance, um, you know, Jono increasingly now has like taken over, say like a lot of the kind of the sales efforts or partnership efforts around, you know, company facing stuff. That's something that at a personal level I'm pretty comfortable with. Um, But by Jono really owning and driving that, it actually reduces the cumulative workload in terms of having to have meetings to coordinate, having to have two different people on one meeting. Like as a founder, your time is so precious. And so the thing we start to ask is like, you know, who needs to be involved in what decisions absolutely and where is it kind of just a nice to have? Uh, and I think kind of, the, yeah, the teething pain was kind of, you know, maybe like at the start, you know, we all wanted to kind of help out, you know, help each other. Like we're very, we're very collaborative team. We have like a super, super collaborative culture. But I think now the big shift is actually, okay, you know what? Um, someone, you know, in the team, there's always going to be like a player one for a certain project or for a certain area. And so you want that player one to kind of, you know, own and drive that area, but actually then go and request feedback from the team as much or as little as they need. 
Another aspect I want to touch on, and I think having got to know you a bit over the last year or so, is you've, you've got this knowledge-spun personality and and a deep level of humility. I think every time we've met and spoken, you ask a lot of questions, you're really curious, you want to always learn. Tell me about that own personal learning journey, building early work, particularly as you've gone full-time and you've raised capital. And we'll get to early work in the next segment, but what's been kind of your own learning journey? Like, Do you have people you speak to outside of your co-founders on a regular basis, or do you read a lot of books, or is it friends in different industries what are some of your kind of two or three threads that's helped you keep your one keep your sanity levels as, as a co-founder but two learn and, and make sure you're growing as, as alongside the business yeah absolutely i mean i think one thing i'll talk to that we did quite early on was like you know with the community bring in both keen beans who are kind of like community advisors and as well as kind of sages who are kind of like perhaps kind of more senior advisors who spent a couple of years in industry and were more evaluating us from kind of a business model perspective so I think, you know, pretty early on, we recognized between the three of us, okay, we're all pretty much first time founders, you know, only just graduating uni or just out of uni. There's lots we don't know. And like, we have a lot of growth to do as people. How can we bring other people around us with kind of different skills and experiences in order to kind of level up there? And so kind of both those groups were kind of instrumental early on in guiding and shaping the direction of what we do in the community, who we prioritize. And so like, I think at a team level, that was super helpful. At a personal level, it's interesting. Like I find almost, um, you know, in running a community kind of full-time plus that's around like tech and startups, I actually probably consume less content than I used to. Mm. Um, like I think for me, my preferred learning style is learning by doing. And so I'd rather go and just test stuff with the community. Um, but I will say like, you know, having the, through the community and prior, like a really good circle of friends across the tech and startup ecosystem means that there's just lots of people to spar about specific things. Um, you know, that, that's the beauty, you know, when you're building a community, you're not just building with like three people, you're building with thousands. Uh, and there's lots of, you know, like, you know, I've got my own blind spots and my own weaknesses. And so finding people who, you know, know more about a certain area than me or have more experience and just kind of reaching out to them for kind of more tactical, specific advice. I wouldn't say necessarily that I have kind of like that, that many kind of recurring mentors. There's a couple who I've kind of had, you know, for a few years, but it's interesting. One thing I've noticed is that like, you know, mentorship when you're kind of an operator, is actually quite different to mentorship when you're a founder, as in like, you know, there are people where, you know, when I was just starting off my career, like they were kind of, you know, seasoned operators in startups or in tech. And so there are a lot of powerful lessons there, but I think building a community led startup, there haven't been that many analogs from a mentorship perspective that I've had directly. And so the, the internet is oftentimes a mentor, you know, whether that's Twitter threads, LinkedIn threads, um, newsletters, um, oftentimes when I think about, you know, okay, how do you build like a community led business? It's actually trying to learn from, you know, other folks out there who've tried to do this sort of stuff before, but it's still uh, an emerging category. And it's probably another aspect, like in my own experience that I've seen an underestimated part of a founder support is speaking to founders that are 12 or 18 months ahead of you. I think that's mm. the advice. One of the advices I give younger founders that are probably, they haven't raised money yet, but they're just at kind of product market fit stages. You forget that, that seeking help from founders that are 12 months ahead of you is something actually useful because they've been through the process. Whereas if you go straight to a VC or a, senior operator to your point they probably can't relate to some of the same mindsets that you're going through would you agree with that yeah i think like there is something you know i I found a lot of value in chatting to other founders and understanding how they think about prioritizing their time how they think about like internal team culture and internal team ops like there's lots of stuff in terms of strategic decision making and in terms of like specific areas you know content or marketing or sales where like you can get super valuable tactical advice from like vcs and operators but um yeah i think you know there is definitely like um a special element in terms of the the founder mindset that's you know that you can learn from founders who are, yeah that kind of one step ahead um i think it's something like actually now that i've been starting to think about more intentionally is like how do i find um you know kind of obviously through the community i've met a lot of amazing founders 
How do I build those recurring relationships so that I can continue to grow alongside other founders who have similar sorts of ambitions, similar sorts of values? Um, because I think, yeah, what worked for me well initially from a, a mentorship perspective was kind of having recurring mentorship rather than just kind of a one-time catch up with a person and then fizzles out. Let's go into early work. And I think I want to share my own personal journey. Like I joined the community, I think when you were two or 300 members on Slack uh, at the back end of 2020. And I still remember that it was just magical. Like it was good conversation back to your point about learning. I learned a lot of things through articles or hearsay or meeting a lot of cool people. And, and I, really enjoyed that and and as, as a lot of listeners would know you had really good growth and, and really organic growth what was the point like I want to ask you about what early work is because I think you've spoken about that in other podcasts and people know that quite well I want to talk to the growth journey particularly if we start with capital raising I think that's been a conversation that's come up a bit and you mentioned about community-based startups there's not many in Australia that have cracked the model that you've cracked when was the kind of point where you felt now's the time that we can go out and seek capital and it's going to help us unlock something. And I think the caveat that the listeners should be aware of is you've had a number of investors in your community, either as friends or as sort of onlookers that have seen the growth journey kind of from day dot, right? Which is always a, a good value add. But can you take us inside your mindset about when was that point that, and I know it's in reflection now, but when was that point you felt you needed capital? And, and what was your thought process? Did you kind of know what capital would help you unlock or was it more let's get capital and see where we go from there really really good question um i think my thinking evolved here and changed a lot over time to be honest you know when we were starting out before earlier was even incorporated as a business there was a non-trivial conversation of oh do we do this as like a a not-for-profit like i think for me what i was really focused on is trying to build like a great community and a home for young people creating future focused careers so tech starts and social impact were areas that just weren't well served by universities and all these awesome opportunities were popping up in Australia, but people didn't know about the pathways. People didn't know about the companies. People didn't know other people in the space. And so it seemed to me there was kind of this community chasm for young people who were taking that path. Um, when it kind of came to funding, I mean, um, you know, there was like a kind of a long while where I thought, you know what, I'll do kind of like my year at Atlassian and then, you know, probably go full time and just kind of bootstrap for a while until we built a venture scalable model. Like I wasn't even sure, like, hang on a minute, like, you know, is this sort of model the right fit for venture funding, for instance? Because I think there's, you know, there's a difference between raising investment and specifically raising uh, VC type funding. Um, and in fact, it, it didn't, you know, when, when it kind of came to those conversations around investment, like we'd had like, you know, a bit of interest early on once we'd started to build a jobs board around the community and start to show that that talent play was possible when you aggregated the, kind of this, this density of young, ambitious people. At the time when kind of we'd initially had some very early investor interest, I had said, you know what? Yeah, I'm not actually sure if you know, this sort of model would work for that. I think we want to focus on building the right thing before we build a big thing. Um, and it was only kind of, you know, like as we started to get a bit more, you know, press, a bit more buzz, um, started, you know, having more and more of these kind of like, you know, inbound sort of conversations. And I think for me, the biggest pillar in terms of, you know, raising funding was being able to bring my whole team full time with confidence. The, the most important thing, you know, in, in kind of building successful stuff is the team. And I think, you know, for John and Marina, John was, you know, still, you know, interning, still in university, was mm-hmm. meant to be starting a grad role. Uh, Marina was, uh, you know, obviously at Finder, kind of on the verge of promotion. And so I think for both of them, there was kind of really a lot of potential value in actually being able to stay in those roles and grow a little bit longer. I think I was probably uh, more impatient. I was like, I just want to go full time on this now. Um, but in, in discussions with the team, I realized that what was going to make them feel confident 
jumping and leaping full time was having kind of that runway in order to be able to experiment and test with different models to ensure that we could build the right thing before we go all in. Tell us about how life changed after that announcement was made by SquarePeg, because I think your point earlier is really important to double click on that, again, listeners might think, and I think there's a certain narrative, you would know this as well, is the general community thinks if you raise money and you get an article in the newspaper, you've, you're successful. But my view is that's the start of the journey to the mountain. 100%. And that actually, that's when the pressure starts and you've got to grow it and you've got investors expecting answers and they're giving you their opinions and everyone's kind of messaging you saying, hey, Dan, how can we get a, pie, a share of this pie? Tell us about that, like when you were in that process, like what was your thinking? And I think I asked this because you're a deep thinker that listeners, some of you that might not, not, might not know you might not know that, like. Did you look at that and go, great, this is a kind of confirmation that what we're doing is working really well? Or did you go, okay, this money is going to help us build new products? And as you talk about building community as a product, talk talk about that. Like how has that helped you with that quarter of a million bucks? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, it's interesting. Like when kind of like the, the news came out, like obviously I think for me, the thing that was really heartwarming was seeing the support from community members who had been there from very early on. Like people who like you kind of you know gave their time and gave their advice and it was just like a little Slack channel or even when it was just a newsletter. Um, I think the most heartwarming thing was seeing like okay like when it went live like people were just kind of like you know being willing to kind of you know share it online you know sharing it with their friends and there was a lot of you know exciting stuff there. I think to be honest as well it's actually like yeah I very much agree with your point that you know raising funding is not success. Raising funding is getting a tool that potentially helps you to be more successful. But we are still so early in the journey. Like I wouldn't necessarily say like early work is like nailed our core business model yet and that for now is kind of the, mm. the primary focus right i think you know you know when, when you think about a pre-seed round it's like okay you've shown a spark you've shown a little bit of magic you've shown something and that gives investors confidence that you know okay there's some sort of market opportunity they have kind of faith in the team and this round like the purpose of it is to go out and actually okay can you deliver on that spark can you turn that into something sustainable and scalable um that's going to be long term so i think to be honest yeah it's like we raised this funding and for me, my mind was turning to, okay, shit, now I need to focus on actually really like delivering around trying to build, you know, a robust community-based business model. And that's going to take time. That's going to take a lot of, you know, user conversations. And we're kind of like still in the stages now uh, launching uh, something new uh, very soon, which I'll hopefully be able to discuss uh, in the next month or two. Um, I think the thing that I found like with kind of the whole media buzz, like the first article, obviously, you know, it's, it's awesome and exciting. But it can start to get fatiguing. Like I actually found like I was setting really bad boundaries as a founder. Like, you know, like when that media buzz was happening, like I was just reaching out to so many potential, you know, like newsletters and podcasts and publications, getting so many people to share it, getting so many inbound requests. And I wasn't, I kind of like lost this um, rhythm in terms of uh, health, in terms of meditation, in terms of like, you know, blocking off solo time. And so actually I remember like just those first couple of weeks after the announcement coming out, feeling just super fatigued and feeling super drained. Like you're like normally like, oh shit, okay, you guys should be celebrating, you should have so much energy. Um, and, and obviously I was really excited, but like, you know, I think like there was all this time getting pulled towards, you know, talking about stuff in public and doing stuff online when really I think, you know, like when when you kind of raise that funding, it's like the time starts now, the the race is on to go and try and, you know, build something viable for the long run. Um, I think now, it's only now, I, I think I'm, yeah, and this is a kind of important learning to kind of an earlier question you mentioned. I think learning to say no to, you know, mm. partnership stuff, learning to say no to, you know, community initiatives where there's kind of a very high touch involvement. I think it's a tricky thing. Like, you know, with a startup, normally you get kind of, okay, 
press partnership opportunities, whatever, you can kind of say yes and no, but with a community-based startup, it's especially tricky because every time you do something with the community, whether it's an event or a content piece or a media feature, there's always that, you know, thing in your head, like, oh, of course, you know, it helps the core business model because it's helping to contribute to, you know, a sense of community, you know, like, and so I think with our model of startup, it gets even trickier to differentiate when is something necessary versus when is something nice to have. And, and I think it's, yeah, now like we've just become, and it's a really, really powerful learning as kind of a you know, first time found is just becoming like very ruthless about how you spend your time. Like I would say probably like in the first couple months going full time, I wasn't ruthless enough. And it's now going, okay, you know what, my t- I know what my priority is in terms of like starting to build out stronger business models around community. Um, and I'm a lot more selective now with kind of you know, partnership opportunities outside of that. Yeah, I think the framing there is sort of reality, perception versus reality. And I think that's really mm. important for listeners to be aware of that because just because you get an article in the newspaper, that's when the kind of stopwatch begins in, in a way. So I'm glad yeah, people, you glad. Yeah, people were saying like, oh, dude, you've made it. Congrats. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I, I have no idea. You know, I'm, I'm definitely still trying to work it out. Like, you know, we had some good signals. We had some good signs. Um, yeah, but, you know, traction doesn't mean uh, a long run business model. Uh, and so it's, you know, a, a scary, but exciting journey, uh, to then go and spend a lot of time thinking and testing really intentionally around that. And let's go into that. Let's go into sort of great community building versus good community building. And I know you've got a, that's your mandate is to build a great community and scale it and, and keep that magic within, maybe we just keep the theme of sort of learnings and something we talk a lot about in the show is painful learnings. That was painful in the moment, but in hindsight, was you really glad you went through that? Is there one that stands out with you for the early work story that has been the hardest learning to date, but you're really glad you went through it? Hardest learning to date? Man, um, Jesus, there's so many that happened along the way. I think, um, as in, yeah, when I, when I think about that kind of the, uh, the very early story of early work, to be honest, it was actually like the first business model we tried before we even tried a community. It was actually trying to do like a no win, no fee career coaching program, fellowship type thing. Um, we, you know, at the time it was just a newsletter, right? And it was starting to get all this traction. We were giving all this, you know, information that was helping people get jobs and we were hearing stories about it. We went, okay, there's a real opportunity here to help more young people land, you know, tech, startup, social impact type roles. And, you know, we did research with 150 students. So we did the user research, found these pain points, found this opportunity that, you know, okay, if people um, could land their dream graduate role, if you could help them do that, they'd be willing to pay several thousand dollars. And so we went, okay, hang on a minute we've built this skill in like startup job search. If we can just, you know, share that skill with others, we can potentially build like a, you know, a really powerful business model there. Uh, and so we set out doing a bunch of, uh, you know, experimentation, like, you know, doing coaching with a, a no win, no fee model. And I think the really important thing there is like, you know, I didn't just want to create an expensive consumer facing model that only folks from a wealthy background could afford. Cause then what happens is you start to entrench inequality from a career perspective. So I think there was that tension in trying to build a model that was fair, but also viable. And probably like the biggest kind of failure there was that we didn't build enough buy-in or commitment at the start. What would happen is, you know, we would run these kind of career coaching sessions after kind of putting out the stuff on social media, you know, people would, you know, book in a session and people would, you know, find value in the first session, or maybe the second session. And then we just kind of like, wouldn't hear from them for a while. Or like kind of the structure was unclear about like, you know, okay, where does this go? Is so we kind of like structured the first few sessions, but I think we didn't kind of build any financial commitment upfront. So it was like kind of like no deposit. So I think like a big learning there is that when something is low stakes, um, like if there's kind of like no buy-in, then it's much harder to get someone to commit. There's not necessarily that filter. 
and even when you I mean, when you think about the community today like i think we've had you know a lot of amazing amazing you know stories and experiences through the community um but i think what we're now you know starting to see that's interesting is you know just because someone's joined a community that happens to be free doesn't mean they're going to be super deeply engaged and doesn't mean that this broad community is going to meet their specific needs so kind of where we're looking more intentionally now is around stronger sub-communities, around kind of different roles, different interests. And that's where we think you can start to build a stronger, uh, higher stakes, uh, more committed business model. In the lead up to this, Dan, we did some community open source questions through, through the podcast and, and through some of your app channels as well. And then I read through some of your Slack kind of questions that come in your Slack group and that people anonymously post, obviously. One of the questions that I think a team that's come about quite a bit is revenue models for a community-focused startup. And you alluded earlier to a team of three and you've got two two employees now as well, so a team of five. How does, how does a community-based startup make money? What does that look like? Great question. I think there are really like two core directions you can start to go in. Uh, number one is the community itself being a paid product. And number two is building paid services around the community. So I think with early work, like we started with number two, right? As in, we you know built this completely free community, had a completely free newsletter. We're bringing all these young people in, helping them. And then from there, we saw an initial opportunity to kind of monetize. You know, a lot of startups tell me the hardest thing for them is hiring talent. And so we had built kind of a job board and a talent search engine and no code, eventually kind of started to partner up with a, another provider on that. Um, and through that, we're able to kind of get like some, you know, subscription revenue from companies every month who are browsing the talent pool early work or companies who are, you know, posting promoted gigs. So that's a kind of like, you know, one manifestation. Um, but I think kind of over time, what you can start to like, if you aggregate, I think there's two factors to think about here, right? Like if you aggregate like a specific, uh, density of talent, so like kind of really like, you know, you know, ambitious, smart, engaged people who have a common interest and a common theme, and you're able to engage them really deeply, you can build things around that over time. So, you know, you think about in the long run, there are opportunities, you know, co-working, co-living, learning programs, uh, job search programs, you can start to build around that. I think the, the other side as well, like kind of around paid communities, there's an interesting opportunity there. You know, as it stands today, kind of the early work community is free. And I think we'd always want the core community to be free. But in building communities, we've seen how powerful those are for people. And so I do think there's kind of an opportunity there um, that you're starting to see as well across other countries of building maybe smaller, more intimate uh, paid communities. Um, so I think in the long run, both sides will play a role in early work. You can have community as a product and then you can have community um, as an enabler of other adjacent products. And I feel like you've touched on my next question, which was actually going to be around sort of daily active users and engagement. I'm sure in the early days, you probably had really high engagement and daily active users and those keen beans, as you call them. And now that you've got, I think, over 3,000 members, that's probably matured a bit. How do you look at that in terms of keeping that engagement up and and sort of balancing between people that just observe versus people that contribute in the community? Super good question. Um, yeah, I think for actually for a while, like our daily active user and weekly active user kind of rates were kind of super, super high. Um, like, and, and they were going super, super well. I think, you know, like as we've gotten super, super big, right? Like we went from kind of communities like 100 people to maybe a community that was yeah, now over 3,000. It definitely is going to change the dynamic, right? Like you have to accept it. Listen, like oftentimes like the culture of the community, the dynamics of the community are going to change. And what that means is some of the original members, maybe like, you know, they've kind of had their core needs met through the community. They've kind of learned about the ecosystem, found their friends, got a new job. Um, so when we think about kind of like, you know, like maintaining engagement, I think the, there are a couple, maybe three key things that I'd, I'd really think about. Like number one is building stronger sub-communities. Like 
community in of itself is not super scalable, right? As in like, you know, you're not going to go to dinner with 10,000 friends, but if you can build smaller groups around that, around more specific interests, then we think there's, you know, opportunity there to cr- like bring together people who have a stronger shared interest and it makes it feel more intimate. Um, in how that manifests, like there's, there's even some private channels in the community, right? Around, you know, say like, you know, women in early work, being able to kind of share their lessons. We've got kind of a private founders channel. Um, and so there's even a question of like, you know, starting to build more small intimate spaces to kind of increase engagement. I think the other one as well, like even starting top of funnel is um, when someone joins the community, that first 24 to 40 hours is mission critical in their future joining the community. Like two people could join at a similar time and one could just never engage um, if they just, you know, don't get that magic early. So we think about, you know, okay, how do you create that magic moment early? There's, you know, a couple things we do. We obviously have kind of a catch-ups group that we kind of, you know, encourage them to join so they can meet someone through the other community. That turns the Slack into something very real. Um, in the in the intros channel, like we, you know, tag everyone to welcome them, give them the community guidelines, encourage them to make an intro. They see the intros of others. And that's, you know, when I talk to kind of users in user research, that's one of the biggest ways that people meet people through the other community is seeing an intro and reaching out. And that's probably one of the most common things that makes people go, wow, there's something special here. Um, but even now, I think like you'll start to see like with onboarding, we're getting even more intentional around it. Like uh, I'll share a little bit of alpha that we're going to be like launching almost like onboarding sessions for the early mm-hmm. community uh, pretty soon. So there'll be a chance there for, you know, users who are coming in to actually really get a context of, okay, what's happening in this crazy Slack with all these people um, and get a chance to almost meet like another cohort of new members. Um, so as in, we definitely haven't, you know, cracked like the the secret sauce. There's a few things we've done right, um, but I think maybe people feel at home. Um, but, you know, work in progress, still working on it. Stay tuned. And the other part probably is as you scale anything, really, you start getting opinions and you've got to sort of manage some of the conversations and keep the harmony, so to speak. I think that's something I want to touch on, particularly in a, in a, in a Slack community where you have people anonymously asking questions and trying to create a bit of fun for the sake of fun. How do you look at that? Is that something that you are more focused on as part of moderation? Because back to the question mm. around quality versus quantity, would you rather have a community of 10,000 members with a lot of average conversations or would you rather have a community of 4,000 members but people are invested and it's a quality first community in terms of no no silly questions and people don't make judgments before knowing people? What's What are your thoughts on that and have there been learnings in that space? So yeah, super good question. I think something that Marina actually did really well early on was actually creating a kind of initial core set of community guidelines. Like when we were just starting on the Slack, it was like, you know, hundred people. She's like, we need kind of community guidelines. I was like, oh, it's just a Slack channel. Um, but kind of, you know, as we've scaled, you know, we've started to almost become a town square for young people in, interested in startups in Australia. And when you bring together a very big audience, as you mentioned there, kind of, you know, you'll get, you know, a few interesting characters, you'll get a few, uh, you know, edgy contributions. I think, you know, on, on the topic of anonymity, it's uh, it's a double-edged sword. Like we've definitely like seen, co- if there are comments uh, that we've seen that are kind of, you know, like uh, abusive or kind of you know, encourage discrimination, like there's stuff that we'll straight out delete um, or stuff like spam. Mm-hmm. Then there are kind of these grayer areas where people maybe, you know, will criticize something they see in the ecosystem or something they see kind of in another company. And I, I think that, yeah, the tricky thing there, and we're still kind of reforming the community guidelines now, the way we see it is like, the purpose of having anonymity is to allow people to ask vulnerable, sensitive questions that help them in their career. Like we think there's a lot of stuff around, you know, like say like if you're interviewing and trying to get advice, if you're raising money, and you're trying to get advice, you might not want your identity revealed. Like there are very reasonable uh, cases for anonymity where you can give people a ton of help where they might not be able to disclose who they are. 
Um, I think at the same time, what we're now starting to be, you know, kind of a bit more, you know, intentional and deliberate about is if people want to, you know, make certain claims or certain criticisms about specific companies or individuals, actually saying that, okay, you know what, the anonymous spot is not for that. Like if you want to make those claims, you have to have accountability. Like we think that creates like a fair system and we think that creates like, you know, probably more good spirit and healthy debate, but the danger of anonymity, you know, it's a mask, right? And you've seen this on so many online forums, whether it's, you know, 4chan or whether it's Reddit, people can say, you know, anything they want because it doesn't necessarily tie back to them. So yeah, I think the way we see it is it's like, there should always be um, an anonymous layer because there will be some really vulnerable conversations that you can't put your name to. But by and large, when it comes to, you know, having healthy debate, um, we think that, you know, community members should be accountable for that. Um, and, you know, we'll get, we definitely haven't, you know, done like a perfect job, but we're growing and learning. And I think, you know, starting to even sharpen our practices over the past week around moderation. And it probably is, is the other part of any startup, right? As you grow, the, the founding team is a bit more distant from engaging directly. So assumptions are made and people feel, because like you said at the start, right? You're expanding your team, so you can't be invested in everything all the mm. time. You've got to step back and, and your team that you've hired is invested. And I saw that with intros now, I think to your team that you've hired, they're doing the intros, with jo as in commenting on the intros, where John used to do it previously. And that's a change in itself where they might not see your name, but they know you're the kind of founder of the business. So I think that's going to be really interesting that I'm curious to see is over the next six, 12 months, how that evolves that as you three take a step back and your, and your first sort of employees be the first line of contact, what that means in terms of kind of the external perception of early work. Really, really interesting question. Um, I think two things I'll say there. Yeah. First off, like, you know, Jared and Varun, like super stoked to have like two new hires who came to us with like a very strong, keen interest in the community and, and wanting to contribute there. And, you know, as you mentioned, like as a founder, you've got to go to scale yourself. You've got to go from working in the business. Oh, sorry. Yeah. In the business to on the business. Hmm. Um, so naturally it's like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to respond to every single Slack message that pops up in, in the intro channel. I think what we do have though, like as a mechanism to ensure that we're never too distant from the community is like, there are specific times throughout the week that we call it community engagement blocks hmm. where every single person, the early work team drops what they're doing. Um, to go engage the community, help people out in the community, answer questions. Like, I think it's really important if you're leading community-based business, you need to be seen in that community. You need to be kind of actively and consistently engaging with it. Um, and it's hard, you know, like juggling that at the size it is now, as well as trying to think about next steps for early work. Um, but I think like, you know, to me, like it's like there's so much goodwill that's created through that free community. Uh, and we need to ensure that, you know, like as a baseline where, you know, like still there, um, you know, kind of pretty frequently, um, to to give people you know trust in the community ecosystem let's let's also touch on kind of the future that was one of the other questions in the in the questions we sourced from the community was a few people were interested in what a success look like over the next 12 to 16 months and it's a really broad question i know but if we talk sort of maybe one or two things whether it is attitudinal or metrics or capital raising what are kind of your priorities of the next 12 months that would fulfill you as a co-founder at early work yeah absolutely like i think for us you know i touched on this a little bit earlier but the really big opportunity we're starting to see is around more specific sub communities within the broader early work ecosystem um so you know when we did kind of use the research some of the biggest things we heard was you know people wanted to learn alongside people who had similar roles or learn alongside people who had you know similar interests in terms of problem spaces um, and when you're starting at a super, super big community, it's really hard to solve for all those needs well in like a single community setup. And so I think what success for early work will look like, I suspect over time, is building an ecosystem 
of interrelated communities around future focused careers and being able to take those global. Um, but to start with, as in like, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect you know, that we're going to go global anytime soon. I think the focus is still going to be on, on the local ecosystem to start, but that sub community experience, uh, I think is going to be key because it, when, once you start to curate a very specific group, then the learnings and the discussions and the you know social events around that group become even more valuable. And that's where we think you can start to make a more viable business model. We've got a few minutes left. So I want to ask a question, which is off schedule, but Given you've got this pulse like to young people, but even older people in startups and broadly in, in Australia, what's the question you get asked the most? Like, where do people reach out to you for help or say, Dan, can you help me with this or want your steer? Are there two or, th- two or three themes that have been common in the community help that people reach out to you for? I think probably, oh, geez, the two biggest I get are, hey, I'm like applying slash interviewing for X job. Mm. Can you like hop on a call with me? And then the other one's like, hey, I'm looking for like funding for my idea or looking to, you know, like, you know, test out my idea. Um, so it's like kind of, you've got kind of the, the very early founder demographic and then the very early job seeker demographic. Um, those are probably the two that come up. And I think, you know, that's reflected in, you know, in terms of the ecosystem, a lot of startups around the career space are focused on job seekers. Um, and, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of, you know, programs focused on early stage founders, whether that kind of be, you know, accelerators or mentorship programs. So those are the two that like I probably get asked most frequently and, you know, definitely like each will, you know, the early stage founder, early stage job seeker, each will play kind of a key role in early work. But I think pro- to, to be honest, like is in like where we are not getting directly asked questions as much, but where after user research, we're studying, starting to uncover a lot of questions is actually around kind of role-based professionals trying to upskill in a specific path. As in, you know, uh, a marketer in the community might not come to me and say, Hey, like, you know, like what's the next step in terms of my marketing career? Like, how do I go, you know, from, you know, product marketing to growth marketing or, you know, something to that effect. So like, you know, I think for us, like we're starting to think more intentionally actually about maybe the questions that people aren't asking us because we're not serving them well. Like there's, you know, not every problem necessarily has to have like a solution that's like super venture scalable and monetizable. There's a lot of things you can just give out for free. Like to be honest, like a lot of job seeker content, we've actually just kind of given out for free through the newsletter. Like people have told me like, oh, hey, I use your like, LinkedIn DMs newsletter and not getting a job. And that's like awesome to hear, but I didn't necessarily have to be like involved super hands-on. I think where there's a gap is actually around probably more the the next step. Like it seems like a lot of young people in startups in Australia uh, don't necessarily have that cohort of peers around them that are specific to leveling up in their pathway. That reminds me of one question I want to ask and we'll close with this question is we talked a lot about your Slack group. Now that's one platform. You've also got LinkedIn, you've got Twitter. I know you've done a bit of TikTok and, and then you've got other platforms that are events and, and kind of in-person interactions as well. Where have you found your most engagement beyond Slack when it comes to platforms, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter, to your question around community mm-hmm. involvement and getting that sort of feedback loop consistent? Is there any platform that you found the most level of data beyond Slack? I'd say from like, yeah, from like an acquisition and kind of continued engagement perspective, it would be the newsletter and LinkedIn. So Substack and LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is the place where almost every young person is who's kind of looking for sort of kind of career related information. So that's just kind of the central hub. It's not tech and startup specific, um, but, you know, people go there to find jobs. People see it as a digital resume. And for us, that has been an incredible, incredible uh, funnel that I think, to be honest, is uh, underutilized by most businesses. Like LinkedIn, normally, you know, Google and Facebook, people think about, you know, spending ad money, um, but LinkedIn organic posts can perform extremely, extremely well. 
And I think part of the reason that is, is because a lot of great content creators aren't using LinkedIn to create content. There's long been kind of this perception that LinkedIn's kind of, you know, a bit of a wank. It's like, you know, very self-congratulatory content. And what that means is when you actually create content that is useful to people, like it is designed for, you know, someone to read and go, hey, this actually helped me. Um, you can really, really stand out. And I think that's where we had a lot of success very early on with the growth of the other community was just cutting through on LinkedIn with like content that was free, actionable, practical, and wasn't trying to sell someone something they had to pay for. Super exciting. Unfortunately, that's a finish line, Dan. Super glad we could do this and very excited for what's ahead and wish you all the best. Vid it, mate. Pleasure chat. Ciao for now. I hope you've taken away some valuable insights from this conversation to apply to your lives and continue to be 1% better every day. And stay tuned for the next episode in this Curiosity series where we take you inside another topic, company or industry.